Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Well, gang, welcome to another episode of CISO Talk. If you're hearing thunder outside, it's because it's, it's, it's the South and we're getting an electric show outside. So I apologize. I've tried to contain the sound as much as possible. It's not sound effect noise to today's podcast, although we will be sharing a bunch of lightning and thunder uh, with Arvind Rahman, who will be joining me here in just a few moments. But before we do that, if this is your first time tuning into the CISO Talk podcast, please make sure to subscribe. Give us a five-star rating. If you're watching us on YouTube, subscribe and turn on the notification bell. Every single day, we post new content right here on YouTube. And if you're not subscribed to our CyberHub podcast, podcast, uh, CyberHub podcast channel on your favorite podcast listening platform, please make sure to do so. Now, without further ado, let's get right into today's lightning show because we've got one outside, but I guarantee you there's going to be one right here today on this episode, CISO Talk Time. Here we go, folks. From the Cyber Hub Bunker and Studio, you're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Arvin, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here, folks. Arvin Rahman is the CISO over at Mitel, and you, you're, you're a veteran of our industry. I am. I know quite a bit of experience, about 20 years in the industry, and it's almost right down the middle, split between the product development, product ownership space, and then in the CISO organization for the last 10 years or so. See, yeah. and that's it, it's always fun to talk to people who've started on the product side and then shifted to the security side, right? Because it's a different thought process when you look at security. So if you don't mind, as you talk about your 20 years, would you mind just giving our listeners a little bit more detail of how those 20 years span and, and kind of the progression of your career to hold the esteemed title of CISO? Absolutely. Uh, I started off as a product R&D head, always been in the security side of things, so security touch to my products, right? My first, I would say four or five years of a career focused on biometric security products, like essentially the voice authentication products. Uh And then from then on, I moved on to hardware-based product development. I've been in the R&D again, 
And, and then that was another four or five years or so. Then I shifted over to CISO uh, side of things in a small organization. I, I guess it's not a small organization, but medium-sized organization in Atlantic Canada and named J.D. Irving. And they were a private organization, but about 15,000 employees. So I would say that's a pretty good size organization. And that's the first time I kind of played the quasi-CISO. They didn't have an information security program. I tried to help them set one up. And then from there on, I moved on to the big banks in the Toronto area. And uh, about four years, I worked in CIBC and then a couple of years in Scotia Bank before this opportunity came by where I said, okay, I'll, I'll use all my experience from a development side, from a product side, and then from a security slash CISO side to put together my first CISO in the MITA. You know, that's, I love that background. Because, you know, I've been doing the show, I think you're episode 125, if I'm not mistaken. So 125 of our peers, Arvind, right? And not one story is the same. Hmm. Not one. If I interviewed 100 lawyers and I said, how did you become a lawyer? I went to law school, passed the bar, became a lawyer. If I interview 100 doctors, how did you become a doctor? I went to medical school, did my internship, became a doctor. CFOs, what would you do? I went to college became a finance, worked in accounting, became a CFO after I got my MBA, right? Is that fair? <laughs> but in security, that's not the case. Everyone's got a different background. So I'm excited that to, for, for you to share a little bit about that because what I really want to start to talk about is leadership, right? And you know, the CISO role today is very much articulated in the fact that we're now business enablers and business leaders. We're no longer a siloed IT function, right? Kind of where we were maybe five years ago. When you look at skills and qualities as you're trying to build your team or you're looking to expand and hire more people, what are some of those intangible skills and qualities you look for? Yeah, I think you you, you hit it right, right? You know, CISOs this day and age have to be business enablers and business partners. And that's something that, you know, that's still a bit of a struggle in the industry, right? You know, big organization especially, and I've, I've been in a few of big organizations where it's been too siloed. So when I came here to Mitel and I built my team literally from ground up, like there was a small team, but uh, the structure wasn't there, you know, so I took my time the first three months to analyze the organization. And Mitel is a pretty global organization in about, you know, 4,000 employees or so. So you had a good sized team. Um, from an organization perspective, but security team was small, so I was trying to build it. And what I wanted to do was set the foundation right and get the right foundation in place and get the right leaders for the foundation. And uh, for that, for me, what that means is somebody who can manage the relationships, technical skills, balance the security skills, and then the delivery skills, and who can actually be enablers for the business instead of saying no, right? You know, security isn't is, I guess, famous for saying no in the past, right? And I think that's where we, we've been deemed as a police, but not been as a, seen as an enabler. Similar to how the CIOs are being looked at for the organizations as being enablers, I think the CISO organization is have to get to that place where we are enabling the business to do what they need to do, but securely. And we do need to have that uh, reputation built up so that we can, when we need to say no, we can say no, but it can't be all the time. Yeah, that that's that's so true. You know, we look at the 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 leadership of a CISO and the ability to say, you know, 
oftentimes the questions that we deal with as CISOs don't really come to you and me, right? It could be someone in DevOps talking to someone in DevSecOps. So what kind of culture do you train within your team to switch them from saying no right away to, you know, sure, but, or yes, we can do it, but what was some of the tricks? What are some of the things you look for? And how'd you get that planted down to security culture and and, then the team itself? Yeah, so in, I start off with everything in life, I mean, it's risk-based. Risk management is the top of things, right? Anything we do, whether it comes to real life today with COVID and how we live with it, right? It's all about risk management. And same thing goes to the business decisions. If we need to you know, embed security in what they need to do, it's all about risk-based, right? We have to be able to have a risk management framework in place in the organization. And the CISO organization should be able to follow that risk management framework to analyze and inform and educate the business folks on saying like, oh, by the way, you want to do this? Here's the risk that we've come up with based on what we know about this environment and what you want to do. By the way, you know, if we, and then you have to categorize them in saying like from very high to very low, you know, whatever the risk is, the five levels of the model. And then you basically advise them accordingly. And in the, the, the the mantra that I follow in my organization and learned on my experience is, if you categorize them from very high to very low in five levels, very high, high, medium, low, and very low, when you are in the high and very high zone, you try to mitigate the risk. When you're in the medium zone, you manage, and when you're in low and very low, you accept and monitor to make sure it doesn't creep up on you. So that's what my team is following from a, from a business perspective to make sure that they understand and it's a it's a cultural change, you know. People are not used to it, right? From a looking at it from that perspective, traditionally the challenge has been also, oh, security is an IT thing. Well, it's not an IT thing anymore, right? It's, it's an organization wide. So I'm big in you know enforcing that in one way that in uh, in in our signatures, for example, we say like cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility, right? You know, it's not just my responsibility as a CISO, because we don't have enough security professionals in the world. To you know, to to deal with the problems that we have in the day in this day. Yeah, it's um, it's you know, to me, cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility. It's kind of a mantra that we all live by. But there's beyond that mantra. You know, you brought up some really great examples of, you know, looking at the risk uh, register and trying to evaluate risk as it kind of continues. Um, throughout the business process. And I think there's there's an aspect of the business process that, that's a bit more challenging, right? And it's, it's the idea of how do I streamline security into the business? So it's not just, you know, the risk aspect of it. It's also how do I, you know, you come from the product and the R&D side. So, you know, this, this might be right up your alley because I think for a lot of CISOs who don't have that background, the idea of baked in security seems very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. How do you see baked in security, you know, of starting from not, here's a product secure it, but here's what we want to do. How do we embed security throughout the process? Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And I think what I have, you know, kind of worked with my team to come up with, you know, kind of six building blocks, right? You know, when it, the product security or security from my perspective, from R&D and product development, you know, perspective is, you start at the leftmost possible where it's conceptual stage, right? Ideas less concept. You start there and you have to follow through from their perspective, from the idea becomes a design, 
the design becomes implementation and implementation follows by post-implementation activities. So, so when you think about idea slash design or concept, you know, what do you think of is how do I embed my security requirements at that phase so that people start thinking about security and, and, and product-based organizations have compliance requirements. So security and compliance are key component of what we need to do. And then from then on, okay, that's good, step zero. In step one, now they go away and do a design and we wanna make sure that there is a security lead slash champion that are living through this process and reviewing the security design to make sure, hey, we told you in step zero, you know, uh, this is, these are the requirements from security and compliance perspective. Have you embedded them in this design process? Perfect. And then you help them along and say like, okay, next we go to the implementation. What are the security testing that we need to do and make sure that there's proper coverage from security perspective. We don't have any, you know, major vulnerabilities in place and how do we make sure that that is resolved before you release those products, right? So that's the next step and then followed by once you some of them, like I said, then you follow the methodology of the risk-based approach. If it is high and very high, you mitigate before you go live. If otherwise, you manage and you know accept and monitor. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I love how you take that kind of approach into the product side, which oftentimes, you know, security people are more interested, and I think we're all guilty of it. You know, I, I you know, and I may exclude you out of this one because you come from the product and R and D side. So for you, the idea is what you lived on for so long and you know how to speak that language and you know how to kind of break down those barriers. I can tell you one of my personal challenges has always been, how do I get in on the table when they're talking about the business idea and not, here's everything we're doing, how do we build security around it? And now you've got to start maybe changing different inputs that people have had on a life cycle of you know building a product that you know could be switched otherwise. Or worse, right? You know, the, oh, by the way, yeah, we have to release it at this time. Sorry, we don't have time to embed security into this. Like, then right. you're too late into the game, right? And, and part of it is, you know, I think a lot of it is educational from a CISO perspective. You need to educate your business partners and say why you need to do certain things at certain stages. And this is where the integrated security come, comes in play. Like, and I, I call them security champions, security leads, whatever, but they need to be embedded in the business lines, right? You know, you have to be part of the business line, still reporting to the CISO organization, but you know, you might as well have a daughter line relationship with the business line to make sure that they have a trusted security partner they can work with and they can build their products and solutions based on the advice they get from the security champions. Let's talk a little bit about security, right? So as a CISO, you know, we, we all, you know, where, where do you spend the most time? What, what part of the business are you spending the most time on when it comes to security? Um, in, in Michael, as a product company, we have, you know, kind of three distinct organizations. One is the enterprise, which is IT plus all the corporate functions. And then we have the product you know, essentially the product management and R&D. And then we have the cloud services operations team, which is all the services that we run on the cloud and so on. So so my my attention is pretty much one third divided all the way, right? And then on top of that, so I have, these are the verticals. And then on top of that, we have the horizontal, which is the you know the GRC team, the, uh, the operations and incident response team, and the architecture team, right? So uh, it, it is important to have that kind of a setup, in my view, to have the right building blocks and right foundations in place and security has to be focused you know not just on the horizontal but also on the vertical pillars that you want to support the organization so when you when you spend your time you're kind of looking at 
three distinct business groups, which I think is very interesting of how you laid it. You're kind of dedicating a third, a third, and a third. You know, there's often uh, similarities within the different business groups that kind of bring about, I don't want to say repetitive work, but more of a, uh, okay, we kind of address this. How do you streamline security across three maybe different business units that may have distinct and special needs? Yeah, so that's a very interesting uh, point you raise up, James, because I think uh, that's why, you know, what I did is, you know, in to to take the horizontals, right, you know, so the GRC, for example, would be the one establishing the policies and standards for the organization or the risk management framework for the organization or the training and awareness program for the organization. So all the common things will be established by them. And then the verticals, the business line, you know, leads from a security perspective, will be the one helping adopting them. So it's more of a, a approach where the horizontal set the framework in conjunction with the verticals, and the verticals help execute on these you know, mandates. And then when it goes to security operations, vulnerability management, incident response, same thing. The vulnerability identification process for both from a corporate perspective and a product perspective will be done by the horizontal you know, team. And then they would be working with the vertical teams and saying, okay, these incidents or these vulnerabilities uh, belong to your group and let's agree on the you know priorities and so on and so forth so it's more of a uh, collaborative approach and i believe that that's the right way or that's i shouldn't say the right way but perhaps the best way to deal with it yeah i think you know there's no one framework or one way of by which a CISO could you know copy paste the model across i think the only model you can copy and paste is if you're the post breach CISO yeah. So you you weren't there when the breach happened. I hired you to rebuild the program. You get all the money you want, and you can pretty much copy paste the model there, right? Because it's a we're gonna do all these different things because recovery is recovery, right? Rebuild is rebuild. A building collapses, right? You're gonna clean it out before you start building again. So I, I think that's the only time where there's duplicity, meaning duplication of a specific work program. But as a CISO, right, like you know, you kind of, you've been in multiple organizations and I kind of want to take you back to getting started at Mitel, kind of your early uh, days in the organization. A lot of times we talk about the first 90 days, the first 100 days as a CISO. What were yours like? What was some of the stuff you looked at at the time? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting journey, so to you know, speak. Um, the, it was my first foray as a CISO, right? And going back to the, my initial roots of products, right? You know, so that was an interesting change from the last ten years. I've been in the, in the retail industry as in the CISO organization, and then six years and six and a half years in banking industry. Completely different type of environment, and banking is you know significantly more regulated, right? And but what I had experience was with the multinational banks, right? So that was a good experience to have. And then when I came over to Mitel in January 2021, you know, it was a different uh, setup, obviously, my mid-sized organization, still extremely global. Mitel has offices around the world, you know, all three continents, really, like I guess, uh, you know, North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific, really, you know, from that perspective, we have presence in all of them. And it was an interesting challenge to understand the different product lines and different business lines that, you know, were in the organization. And uh, it was, uh, you know, banks are pretty, pretty straightforward. You release applications in certain part of the bank, but primarily focused on data, customer data, and so on and so forth. Whereas in a product company, there's a lot more intellectual property that you know that exists from a product development. 
and there's a lot more uh, complexity that comes in from, from that perspective, right? So my first 90 days was about learning the organization. I'm still learning, by the way. I'm eight months in, I'm still learning, right? You know, <laughs> I think I can still say that for another <laughs> little while. Um, but, you know, the first 90 days was about uh, learning the organization, learning what people are you know doing today. And but because of the size of the organization, I would qualify it as a mid-size. It was the learning phase was much faster you know, when I wanted to get to a place where, okay, now I understand the organization's setup, organization support model from security. And here is what I've learned from the initial assessment. And this is based on a rough assessment of what the organization's security maturity is. Here's what we need to put in place from a structure perspective. Let's make sure that the foundation is strong. And then let's build on the foundation to hire the right leaders and the right building blocks, if you will. And then let's build on the further ones from there. So you bring up a, um, a very interesting point, you know, with all the different building blocks and kind of getting familiar. And the different size organization obviously defers. I think, you know, in some cases, it takes you even a year to understand what's going on and, 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 and so forth. You know, now you're eight months in. If you could go back to, you know, you look back at your first 90, maybe 100 days, uh, what's one thing that you would say, that's a great press practice I'm going to take with me forever? What would that be? Um, let me take that moment to answer that. I, I think it, what I would say is definitely um, what I would take forward is, you know, the time I took to understand the initial phase and uh, of understanding the organization, right? And also putting together the right model for the organization. I think it's important that... Sometimes what happens with the CISO, and especially first-time CISOs, and I am a first-time CISO, um, is the eagerness to prove your value, you know, kind of shades you from necessarily taking the time to understand the organization, right? So I think that's what I would say I'm proud of from the perspective. Like I did not rush into my go-forward strategy. I took the time. And, and then the also it, support, it was support, well-supported by the the executive team at Mitre, right? You know, one of the things that I like about the culture is the the executive leadership team is fully bought into security and has given me the full freedom to set the security as we need it to be for the organization of our size. With the understanding that obviously, you know, I'm not here to uh, say no to everything. I'm here to make sure that, you know, that we can operate uh, the business securely and, you know, much more securely than what we used to be. You know, so you bring up a really interesting point, kind of the first 100 days, every CISO, myself included, when we walk into a role, we kind of have a strategy in place because during the interview process, we've taken a bunch of notes and we've kind of gotten an idea. Uh, we've heard some of the complaints and we kind of come with some sort of plan, right? Written or in our heads or in our notes, we kind of have some sort of plan in taking the time to not prove your value right away and kind of taking the time to learn. Did you see your plan change from what you had initially to what you're doing now? I, I, it actually did, James. You know, it's, it's a very good point you make because, bef like you said, during the interview process, I had some slides prepared and based on my, you know, what I want to do from a CISO perspective, which definitely worked well in the interview process because, you know, they, they like to see how you think and how you do it. But I think the key for CISO from an organization to organization is adaptability. You cannot take your existing playbook and say, yeah, this is going to work in a new organization. You can take some components of it. You can take the framework and you can try to adapt to the new organization based on the organization's setup needs and business model and you know what their priorities are. 
And one of the things that I've always believed in and learned through my several of my CISO uh, organization roles is that you have to figure out what the business objectives are and try to map your value to the business objectives. Why are the risks that come for the business objectives, right? So you identify the top five goals for the organization and you say for achieving these goals, what are the cybersecurity risks that associate with it? And then how does a CISO help the organization manage the risk and mitigate the risk to a certain level that you know you can never eliminate the risk. If you want to do that, yeah, turn off the computers, turn off the internet, and you know, there's no risk. Right. You know, like it's like my favorite meme. If you put a, your server right and they've got a glass on the server and they go in event of a cyber attack, break glass and disconnect all wires. Yeah. Right. Like that's a that's a that's that's a funny meme altogether, but it's really kind of you know that's if you want zero risk, then I suggest you move back to pen and paper. Yeah. And you know, calling your clients on their landline phone from your landline phone, and hope that someone still has a landline somewhere, um, because that doesn't exist anymore. Most people don't have landlines anymore. Absolutely, and one thing I think maybe this is the time to talk about this as well. You know, I'm a huge, huge fan in general of a concept called zero trust or verify then right. right? And this this is truly useful in this day and age because it's all risk focused but at the same time the traditional model is oh you, you're inside the four walls i trust you i let you go roam around the house all wherever you want right right but that has proven to be costly and you know all and you see ransomware attacks every single day right and, and the ransomware attacks have changed from just encrypting your servers and asking for money to taking your data and posting it somewhere if you don't pay the money right so the, the threat actors and threat vectors are evolving. So, you know, I think from a CISO perspective, that's where we have to be ready to be adaptable uh, and then making sure that, you know, we move our strategies and tactics along with the what's presented to us. You know, you talk about zero trust and let's get into zero trust because yours truly here has, you know, you and I've talked about it before, right? So it's no surprise to, to, to either one of us. I've always looked at Zero Trust and said it's a horrible name. Horrible name. Yep. You put Zero Trust in front of your board of directors, and man, you start to get hand. What does that mean? What do you mean, Zero Trust? Is that how we're going to communicate it to the employees? What kind of reaction do you think we're going to get from people? Do you think other departments are going to really like the idea of Zero Trust? And when you're not trusting people, does that impact our company culture um, and so forth? And and and, and there's there's a lot of validation to those claims, but there's also some validation to the strategy, right? And the idea of trust, but verify. I trust you, but I'm gonna verify that you are who you say you are. That's kind of the idea of MFA. You put in your password, so I trust you, but now I'm really gonna verify it's you. Here's a code to the device that only you have access to, allegedly, and and enter it, and therefore now you've you've been granted access. Um, but, but, but zero trust itself has, um, you know, in a survey I did on LinkedIn a little while ago, it was a 50, 50 between a buzzword and a strategy. Um, how do we fix it? Yeah, I think you're hitting right on the head there, right? I think zero trust can be looked at as a buzzword or a strategy, but as we know, it's all about how you communicate whatever you want to do, right? No matter what you do in the organization, what change you want to make, the biggest portion of it is how you communicate and how is 
how is it received? So I would, I'm with you on calling it trust but verify or verify then trust, you know, instead of calling it a zero trust, but the concept behind this is the same. So it doesn't matter what is it being called, as long as the strategy behind it and the concept behind us are the same, and that's, some, that's what I think we need to focus on. In we, you and I both know the zero trust word came from you know probably from a you know well-known uh, industry uh, organization, right? You know they 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 tend to stick when they've come up with names, so that's where the zero trust word came from. Uh, but I'm with you on calling it trust but verify or verify then trust, so that people don't take it the wrong way and say, yeah, we're going to implement a zero trust strategy. What do you mean you don't trust me anymore? Yeah, yeah. There's there's you know, I think one of the biggest challenges we've had in security is we're really horrible at marketing. Yeah. Right. Like we're really horrible at it. We, you know, when, when, when security started and, and we go back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right. We were the, the people of no, we were chicken little, the sky's falling, right. No, don't do that. The sky's going to fall. Everything bad that's going to happen can potentially happen at a time where cyber attacks were uncommon, meaning major attacks were uncommon. And if they were common, we didn't know about it because the reporting wasn't necessarily, the required reporting wasn't necessarily there. Now we live in a world where because everything is online and because of social media, you can, you know, you can go through a cyber attack. And before you even announce it, there's people on Reddit going, so-and-so is offline. We're on a Slack channel. So-and-so is getting a 404. And they're saying it's an IT incident on Twitter. And you're like, oh, they're under a ransomware attack or they're going through a cyber incident, right? And you don't have that uh, anonymous, you know, kind of like that anonymous, on an anonymous, <laughs> I can't talk today. You don't have the kind of the, the, the idea to back away, take some time to really regroup. Everything is very, very public today, which is why Zero Trust, I think to me was, kind of setting us back to the people of no, right? Um, and, and it's not necessarily about um, the strategy, like you said, right? It's the, it's the marketing issue, but it's also the implementation of zero trust within an, within an IT or a network or an infrastructure. There's, there's specific aspects where um, it's very hard, at least I see it, to do a complete and absolute zero trust, right? Because in some cases, it's not functional. How do you see it? Because you're kind of, you know, in, in our conversation with Zero Trust, you you had me convinced, right? You were like, James, listen, this is the strategy. This is why. So I kind of want to take us back to, you know, Zero Trust doesn't fit everyone, but it's a good strategy, you know, when you combine it with, you know, if you look at NIST 800-171 and if you look at the CIS top 20 and you, you, you sprinkle Zero Trust on some of those things and you may have a good viability of, 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 of some level of security, but how, how do you address, you know, zero trust essentially in, in, in multiple environments where maybe it's not applicable? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's a valid point, valid concern. You know, while I'd like to continue to calling it trust, but verify or verify then trust, it's a mouthful. So for the simplicity, we keep it zero trust, right? <laughs> you know, well, I so. want people to know what we're talking about. So if someone tunes in and skips 30 minutes in, yeah. They go, what's, what's, what, what's that? Yeah, so, exactly. so for that as well, we'll keep it zero trust. Uh, but in my view, the zero trust has two major objectives or benefits from it. 
The number one is reduce the attack surface for the organization. Number two actually is user experience. Increase or enhance the user experience so you can actually connect from anywhere without having to go through the legacy channels of you know forced VPN all the time kind of a connection, right? So to me, it's all about marketing, like you said. If you had advertised it like, hey, this increases security, but also enhances your end user experience, you should be able to connect from anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you're sitting, right? That, that So if you were to design this, architect it correctly, and roll it out correctly, I think those are the major benefits. Now, from a zero trust rollout perspective, there's two components. One is the user side of things. The other one is the system side of things, right? You know, you have to have zero trust on both uh, from a concept and the strategy perspective. From the user side, like you mentioned, the benefits of the end user experience is going to be enhanced. And you can you have to put in the, obviously, the first step you would do from a zero trust is user authentication. I, you, if you are claiming I am James Azar, okay, let's verify it, right? Make sure that it is James Azar. Oh, and then followed by, okay, James Azar is coming from, you know, point A. Is he using a, a organization supplied laptop or a desktop or is it a personal device, right? And then you make a decision based on security, based on the device that you're connecting from. If it is a personal device, then you have an extra set of things that you may want to do. Consider putting in a containerized environment so that the personal device cannot talk to the uh, you know, environment. So in case your personal device is compromised, it will not enter the organization's resources, right? If it is an organization's device, then you have to then, okay, check, you move on to the next step, which is to putting in some sort of security controls, virtualized security controls, in a cloud environment or a virtual data center, however you want to see. And then you make a decision on, okay, where do you want to go? Do you want to access a cloud-based application or a private data center-based application? And then what you would then build up is if you, if you want to go to a cloud, you let them go to the cloud. If you want to go to a data center, then you would establish a one-to-one -one VPN for the application or system they want to access after they go through the step one to three. So in essence, Zero Trust, it's not going to kill the VPN concept fully. It is going to replace the you know full-blown VPN with a per-app VPN as you need it, or you know it's more flexible model from that. And on the system side, you know just to finish that thought, on the system side, then you would have to make sure that the systems are you know well protected from a, a potential lateral movement perspective in in a ransomware potentially perspective, and have the required controls from. The, from the systems, making sure there is micro segmentation in place if you can, because we all know that network segmentation is a is a dream <laughs> that you don't want to ever achieve sometimes because of the cost, right? So I guess that's really the summary of how I would kind of go about it. So, so you brought up something very interesting, which is kind of the idea around user authentication. But then when you talk about system authentication, I think that's where I have the biggest challenge with the zero trust, because I can see the zero trust or trust and verify model, right? Um, as something that's very effective when it comes to user identity verification and data access and data management, you know, kind of within a DLP policy, within data classification and data access. So validating, um, you, know, um, you know, what everyone essentially does per se within a system and what they get access to. From a system perspective, I feel like there's a bigger challenge within the zero trust ar it, it architecture, right? And part of it has to do with the fact that we live 
in an AAS world where everything is as a service, right? Your DNS as a service, your SaaS, your infrastructure, your platforms. Um, you know, I, I can keep going, but there's a bunch of AASs that keep getting invented every single day, including ransomware as a service and crime as a service. Yeah. Right. So it seems like we live in a world where we're, our, our organizations are driven and supported by microservices that is, is very hard to really completely comprehend it simply because in the hardware world, right? If we go back to the hardware world and I was to order 300 servers from someone, I would know the entire supply chain of those 300 servers. The parts are sourced here, right? Because that's part of the contract. They're assembled here. They're shipped here. They're delivered here. They're transported here. Then they're delivered to you, Mr. Customer. And I knew that entire supply chain because contractually, if I ordered it and I needed it by day five, they would explain that, you know, there are different people along the way. There are different routes and we don't control all of it. But here are how we supply you these servers, Mr. Customer, right? It could be these parts are sourced in India and get to China or vice versa. You know, it could be that they're sourced in Bangladesh and then they go to India for assembly. Then from India, they're trucked to you know, like Goa or Chennai, and then from there they're put on a boat. Then that boat comes around, you know, cuts through the Mediterranean, into the Atlantic Ocean, and into Jersey, Miami, Savannah, you name it, right? And then from there, it's shipped to the customer on a truck or a train or a freight, and it goes into a warehouse and then to you. And that's a supply chain anyone, you and I can understand. We understand the risks. We understand the day plus day, you know, plus two, three days for, you know, different things that we can account for. And it's all visible. And I say that because when it comes to the software platform or infrastructure supply chain, well, we get a shared responsibility model. And the shared responsibility model creates a very difficult part to do a um, um, a zero trust architecture because I don't know downstream. I don't know. I can't go to one of my SaaS providers and say, what repositories are you using in GitHub or GitLab or Docker, right? Or, or BitLocker or whatever um, that I need to know about because if they're disrupted, that's going to disrupt me. You and I don't have that access. Very few people give us that. So how do you, how do you look at zero trust in, in this kind of environment? Um, that's a very interesting question. So I would look at it slightly differently. To me, the zero trust and the AAS are not necessarily tied to each other. Because the world is going towards AAS no matter what. Right. We're there. It's done. It's yeah. over with. It, yeah. So if you keep the traditional way of doing security, you still have the AAS problem or AAS right. solution. You know, you can see, look at it both ways, right? One, we have to, I think, as CISOs need to start thinking about is traditionally CISOs have depended on, you know, choke points, whether it is proxies, firewalls, and traditionally dependent on forcing people to certain choke points and then enforcing security that way. I think what we have to adapt to is going from security force at choke point to security traveling with the user, right? Flexibility with the user. And that primarily puts us in the position of doing something at the endpoint, which is not a concern these days because most of the endpoints are pretty powerful. 
And the second piece is, you know, virtualizing security, which is not something that a lot of users are comfortable with, right? You know, the when when Zscaler came around, for as an example, you know, not every CISO wanted to jump on that bandwagon. But you know, I was another one which actually evaluated them quite significantly at that point in 2015, 2016 timeframe. You know, while there are some challenges, they definitely had the right ideas in place, right? I think you know that that's where I think we need to start thinking about from a security perspective. Is start thinking of security needs to travel with the end user. Uh, rather than the choke point, which again sub is well supported by the zero trust, trust but verify, verify then trust architecture. You know that's such a um, a, a wonderful answer and really a very uh, a logical one, I must add. Um, so before we're we're almost at time, but I want to get to one more question and then I want to go into the Cisco Insight round very quick. You know, I, I like to end everything on a positive note. What's one uplifting thing? that you're seeing in cybersecurity that's really keeping you optimistic about our industry? Uh, one uplifting thing, I think it's the, the, the community, right? And the community has definitely come together. Um, one of the things I like about security industry in general, and this is very prominent in the financial industry, and I think it'll spread to the other places, security is not seen as a competitive advantage, right? Between the banks, between the organizations. So they come together and they actually help each other out because nobody is fully secure. We know that the bad guys have more money than we do. You know, that's just the reality of it. So nobody laughs at other person's misery, right? I think that's the part that I'm really happy about. And I think it's spreading from financial industries to non-financial industries the same way. You're starting to see that local security forums where different CISOs come together. I think you know more and more CISOs are starting to realize we can't be a silo. We have to be business partners, and organizations are realizing that CISO is not a somebody down the you know senior management, senior manager, director level. It has to be elevated to a certain higher level, you know, reporting to the C level, and perhaps sometimes reporting to the CEO or the board. I think those are the improvements that I'm I'm actually thrilled about, and I think. Security is taken more and more seriously. It is part of a lot of board conversations in many of the organizations, and uh, CISOs get to go to the board, you know, for good or bad reasons, you know, to to have the limelight. If you will. Indeed, I love it. Time for my favorite part of the show. We get to know you, Arvind, a little bit better. So I've got a buzzword graveyard. We bury a bunch of buzzwords, and the topic that we just discussed, zero trust, has been—it's buried in my graveyard. It really is. A lot of people have called it a buzzword. But what's one buzzword you'd bury in the graveyard? Um, I think I'll go with what I said. Security needs to travel with the user. Like it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a longer sentence, but security travels with the user is my buzzword. I love it. I love it. What's what? What do you think is one technology that will change the way we do security? Why I don't want this to happen, but quantum. Yeah, I I, I will uh, actually completely support you. I think that quantum is going to run, but I think quantum for what it will do to our adversaries will do so much more to our defense. It will. I'm right. still scared about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing. There's a few people to follow around quantum that are very very smart in security. Chris Lindbergh out of the CDC and Sam Phillips at Wells Fargo. Both of them are doing some great writing and talking a lot about quantum when it comes to the security space. 
really, uh, both of those guys are, are people I really enjoy listening to about it. And they make it, they, they dumb it down. They make it very simple, which, you know, is really important. Um, what's a, uh, what book are you reading right now? Um, I'm more of an article person. So I really, I'm not a book guy, more of an yeah. article, but I follow a lot of cybersecurity articles. So anything interesting you've read like recently? Uh, actually not nothing I want to point out, but you know, I, I just, I, I find it interesting that the, I'm always interested in knowing about any of the new possible threat vectors and ransomware attacks and things like that. So I was reading about it today. Uh, I think uh, I just got the news somewhere that Accenture was hit with the ransomware attack or something. I was just reading. Yeah, Lockbit, Lockbit hit Accenture um, um, with, and and Lockbit's very interesting, by the way, right? I don't want to, uh, you know, we're almost at the end of the show, but for those who don't know, Lockbit put out a bounty and said, sell us your credentials to your company and you'll make millions. And apparently someone very disgruntled at Accenture has taken Lockbit up on their, uh, Offer. Under offer. Yeah. Um, what's the last movie you saw? Or um, something you're streaming at the moment? Um, I'm, I'm thinking because I've seen a lot of, of late of, uh, you know, Bollywood movies, but not... <laughs> so what's a good Bollywood movie? What should we watch? What's a good Bollywood movie? Oh, what's a good Bollywood movie? That's a good... Uh, let me come back to that. Go to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite music? Um, it's both that I like jazz and Carnatic music from a classical music perspective. I love it. And what's one thing you, you took away from solar winds? Enhance your vendor, vendor risk assessments. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, so, it's never enough. Like, I think that's one piece, uh, if I can take in 10 seconds to expand on this is yes, please. That's one, that, that's one place where I think we have traditionally not done a good job of a CISOs in terms of managing vendor risk, right? You know, and advising organizations, you know, I've been in many organizations, including big banks, where the vendor risk management has been a challenge. And as we know from solar winds, that is the main point of attack these days, right? You know, supply chain, vendor risk. If they can come through our trusted partners and vendors, why would they try to ask? Like, even if you have a bulletproof, <laughs> mechanism for the bad actors you do allow access for the vendors and trusted partners and if they can come through that you know i don't think CISOs have taken it as um seriously as we should be from that perspective yeah i think there's um when you talk about vendor risk management it's one of the things where i've been writing a lot about it i've got a bunch i got a series of blogs coming out on vendor risk management that i think are all uh, categorically challenging um for many practitioners which is um what I like to call now the shared responsibility model with every vendor. So to me, if a vendor that I work with isn't doesn't have a shared responsibility model within their security piece, I'm likely going to doubt the maturity of their security program. Uh, because if you can't tell me what I'm responsible for and what you're responsible for in the onboarding before we even sign the contract, then I've got an issue with, with what you think we're doing business together. And I think that's one thing that Amazon and, and Microsoft have all kind of led the way with that shared responsibility model that's really made life easy for a lot of us practitioners, right? It, it has, but I will also say this, right? You know, you may have managed your immediate, you know, third party well, right? But there's fourth parties and fifth parties that often come into play. Right. 
And I think that's where the biggest challenge for us as a vendor risk management program is, you know, how far do you go? How deep do you go? And it's what do you know? Because if yeah. you know it and something happened, then what? What does yeah. that really mean? And I think, yeah, that's that's a great. You know, I'm so intellectually uh, enjoying this conversation that I don't want it to end, but I have to. We're out of time. And so I hate it. Um, I want to have you on again, Arvind. And I really want us to deep dive because I think intellectually, um, I'm, I'm really stimulated at the moment uh, with, with, with how our conversation went. And that's really fun for me because I love to geek out on security and the back and forth that goes with it from strategy and so much more that, you know, when we're done with this podcast, my brain is still going to be going back to stuff we talked about. Um, so I, I'm, I'm eternally grateful that you took an hour out of your busy, busy day to be with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And the feeling is mutual. I totally enjoyed the conversation and I'm looking forward to the next time whenever that is. Absolutely. Folks, Arvind Raman. Arvind, how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way? I think everybody can find out from the email address. So arvind.raman at mitel.com or uh, put it on LinkedIn. You know, you can connect me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Folks, that's it for this week's CISO Talk. We'll have another great episode next week. Make sure to go check out our Cyber Hub podcast where the daily practitioner brief Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. Eastern, live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitch. Look for the CyberHub podcast channel on all of those networks. And if you're on LinkedIn, you need to follow me, James J. Azar, in order to catch the live broadcast. That's it for us here. Again, see you guys next week. Until then, have a great time and stay cyber safe. Cheers. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com.